Many organizations struggle when it comes to communicating and realizing their business strategies. Many workers don't even understand the strategies in their own company. Welcome to the North Star with William Ulrich. Find out where your organization stands, what you might be doing right, and where you can improve. Now, here's your host, William Ulrich. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You're listening to the North Star. Feel free to contact me by email, LinkedIn, or at my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Today, we're going to be discussing enterprise risk management with my guests, Jim Gilligan and Sim Siegel. Jim Gilligan is Vice President of Nexus Risk Management, a consultancy serving life insurance, well, life companies and pension plans. From 2000 to 2016, Jim served as President, CEO, and Board Member of Blue Cross Life Insurance Company of Canada. Jim was previously with Price Waterhouse, now PwC, and currently sits on the board of the directors for the Business Architecture Guild. Sim Siegel is president of Symergy, an enterprise risk management consultancy. Sim is founder and director of the MS in Enterprise Risk Management program at Columbia University. He's a globally recognized thought leader in enterprise risk management, and he's author of The Corporate Value of Enterprise Risk Management, a seminal book that is used by leading universities around the globe. Jim may be reached by email at jim.gilligan, that's G-I-L-L-I-G-A-N, at nexusrisk, N-E-X-U-S-R-I-S-K.com, or at his company website, nexusrisk.com. Sim may be reached by email at sim, that's S-I-M, at simergy, S-I-M-E-R-G-Y.com, and at his website, uh, simergy.com. So welcome, Jim. Welcome, Sim. Uh, is there anything either of you want to add regarding your backgrounds that I might have missed in, for, as far as uh, enterprise risk management? Bill, uh, this is Jim. No, not at all. That's, I'm fine. Great. Sim? I'm, I'm good, Bill. All right. Well, let's let's keep, make sure we're all on the same page as we talk about enterprise risk management today. So I wanted to start fairly simple. Uh, so how, how would you define uh, risk? Uh, either one of you uh, can start. Well, uh, I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, so risk is, is often defined as just loss or even worse, just extreme loss uh, mm-hmm. by most, uh, most people. And that's really limiting. Uh, it's better uh, in an enterprise risk management context to define risk as uh, events causing a deviation from what's expected and what's expected in terms of your strategic plan, what you expect to achieve, what your key metrics are, what levels you expect to achieve in the plan. Because any shortfall from there uh, should be included, not just a, a loss, of, let's say a loss of earnings, but any shortfall from what you expect. A second aspect of defining risk in an enterprise risk management context is to define risk as anything that causes a deviation either down or up, which is really unusual. I mean, if you think about your bonus, we all think, well, you know, the, the, the chances that my, bo- my bonus may be less than expected this year, that seems like a, a risk. But we're asking you to think about the risk that your bonus may be higher than expected as a risk also. And, and it's unusual, but it's, there's three reasons why it's important. First, you have to include offsets across business segments. If you're only looking at how a risk hurts one of your business segments, not realizing some of your other businesses are counter-cyclical that will offset it, you're missing it. You're misestimating because you really care about the net impact on the organization to better prioritize. A second aspect is you can have offsets uh, within a business segment because a risk may be naturally more likely to be accompanied by another risk that say it's more correlated with happening at the same time in the same year. 
which may also will offset or exacerbate. So you have to think about uh, both upside and downside. And the last and probably most important point is that you need both sides for risk reward decision making, both the up and down volatility. That's good. Um, so let's let's broaden it out a little bit. So people say, well, yeah, we do risk management, but we're talking t- today about enterprise risk management. Could so can we uh, differentiate those two? Get a little clearer on that. I'll jump in. Um, sure, absolutely, Bill. I think that uh, you're looking at uh, risk management kind of uh, as uh, more of a generic term and really affects all aspects of an organization. So whatever part of the organization it has to be, there needs to be some statement of of risk, risk appetite, um, uh, what your uh, tolerances are for risk, what your targets are on an annual basis. And... uh, and, and I would say when you aggregate those, when you the, sort of the sum of all risks, if you will, um, would be your enterprise risk management. So the, the ERM really refers to what overall the risk is of the organization, but you can easily cascade that down and break it down into each uh, individual organization. And, and really, they should be looking at what their risks are, and they should be thinking through, and they should be applying whatever sort of um, either qualitative or quantitative uh, aspects to uh, come up with what that that final risk is. I mean, my experience is with uh, a financial services organization, a life insurance company, and um, and our regulator, um, although not um, prescriptively based in terms of their, um, uh, the way that they uh, did their compliance and oversight, they always were sure to tell us they were principles-based alone, they used to leave enough breadcrumbs for us to uh, pretty much identify where they wanted us to go. But basically, at the end of the day, and particularly after the Great Recession back in 2008, 2009, um, they really expected us to uh, cascade our ERM down into um, effectively risk management for each of the areas. And they wanted us to apply quantitative um, aspects to that so that we would actually be able to describe our risk in terms of some quantitative uh, uh, aspect. And for us, it was capital. And, and that's what I used to tell our board, that the, the currency of risk for us as an organization is capital. So if we want to do more things, if we want to expand into different things, if we want to take on more risk, we can do it, but we need more capital. That's, that's our currency. And in order to get there, you really need to understand and go through and figure out how it affects each area of, uh, of the organization. Uh, Jim mentioned a couple of things there I want to I wanna comment on, really important points. <clears throat> Jim mentioned often it's a generic term. And I hear this all the time. People refer to risk management and then enterprise risk management synonymously. So, Bill, a great question that you asked. And, and I think uh, if you look at, at risk management, uh, there, there's, a, there's a, a distinct difference. So risk management, traditional risk management, which predates enterprise risk management, think of what they often call silo risk management. So uh, you have the different areas, uh, credit risk management, uh, market risk management, you've got IT risk management, HR, compliance, you've got all these different areas, and they all stay within their own lane. So think of silos on a, on a farm, keeping the you know, high, tall, building, narrow, keeping the grain off the ground to keep it dry. It, they don't mix. 
right? Everybody stays in their own area and managing some volatility items at the top of that, which are very, very important to the organization. Some that are very granular at the bottom, which aren't going to be very meaningful, but it's got to get done. Great work. It's always going to be around forever. But along comes enterprise risk management. And as Jim said, it sits at the top and looks across the entire organization and says, what are we doing? Where are the biggest items that we need to focus our limited time, attention, and resources on to, to make the biggest impact for the organization to achieve our goals? Not only to better prioritize, we find, well, there's three from this silo area, one from this, zero from that, nine from the other uh, of the top, most important. Also, ERM for the first time looks at interactivity between and across the silos, which is really important. Uh, another aspect uh, that Jim mentioned is cascading down. So enterprise risk management, as he's mentioned, regulators ask and can be done. You can dive deeper into any one area uh, if you have the right approach. It needs to relate to each other so you have aggregation and, and better comparatives. Uh, a second aspect that I think is important to note is that a lot of people think differently about enterprise risk management and its relationship to risk management. And when it came along, if you think about just picture the three words, enterprise risk management. It came after risk management. So most people that were involved in risk management, they saw the parentheses around risk management and said, oh, enterprise is now in front of, let's just enterprise this. Let's just buy a $2 million IBM system and just let's add up lists. Let's just <laughs> aggregate every tiny granular thing that could ever happen and ta-da, and then let's report that. And, and that doesn't do very much. And that's a lot of activity and a lot of vendors sell stuff around that doesn't produce much and it turns a lot of people off what enterprise risk management should be and and is uh enterprise risk that should have the parentheses around it. enterprise risk find the biggest drivers of volatility up and down and and how they interact and to better uh understand and manage those for the for the, for the uh, overall firm and then manage that right so enterprise risks top 2025 volatility items and then manage that better i think you guys hit on some of these but well, let's talk about um you know, why organizations should do this? What's, what's the value in, in this investment for them? And uh, either one of you can start. Well, I think that, um, you know, if you look at, uh, at history, um, risk management has been going on from, virtually from time immemorial, from, from the time that, um, that fishermen went out to uh, catch, fi catch fish in the Sea of Galilee. Um, that there's been risk management uh, associated with that. It, it's just not really been, uh, you know, made into more of a, uh, an art, if you will. But uh, I'm reading a book right now that uh, is really interesting about, uh, about risk. It's called Inside Money, and it's about the, the history of Brown Brothers Harriman, which is, uh, was an investment bank, and after Glass-Steagall sort of became more of a commercial bank. But the interesting thing about it is it began in the 18th century and, uh, and it was there. It started in uh, Northern Ireland and, um, and these folks were, were uh, involved in exporting products from, from there to London and uh, to the U.S. And eventually they, they started to grow the business. So they started to uh, take care of cotton that was coming back from the U.S., and the business got bigger and bigger. But the interesting thing about it was they were always focused on risk. They were always focused on, on what is our risk capacity? In other words, what are the things that we can do, but only to the point where the company will go under? And they were constantly looking at that. So they were taking more risk and they were growing, but 
they were always doing it with an eye on, on what they actually had the capacity to do. And there were times when they ran into to difficult periods. So they had actually taken a, uh, an ownership position in a ship, so they wanted to become part of that, and, and it sunk, and, and it was a severe financial uh, setback for them, but not enough to turn the company over. So to your point, Bill, about, about risk and why it's important is there always needs to be uh, your eye on what's my capacity of risk, how much risk do we have, beyond which the, the company will fail. And, and for, for Brown Brothers Harriman, they did that all the way through, and, and they went through you know, all of the great setbacks, and they survived those things because they may not have called it risk management or ERM, but they always had an eye on what's the risk capacity that this organization has. So, uh, you know, that, that's something that um, is, is not always said and may seem to be fairly intuitive, but I think uh, history is replete with examples where organizations didn't uh, do that kind of thing. It, if I could add to that, uh, I would say that uh, one way to look at what the value is, is what, do you, what do you get out of it from different stakeholder perspectives? So if you look at the shareholders, they, as Jim, Jim said, you get a, just an increased likelihood of achieving what you intend to achieve. Uh, and S&P did a little, little study on this, uh, which I can refer people to. But it, also you get enhanced risk disclosure for shareholders, which is an interesting area because it, it's a potential area to protect, again, I'm not a lawyer, but to protect, protect against shareholder litigation if the right things weren't disclosed. Boards just get better assurance, excuse me, that uh, key risks are well understood and managed. The C-suite gets better shock resistance, which is their job, and also better stakeholder communications, which can possibly increase the stock price and uh, get a stronger maintain the rating. And an example of how to see this is, imagine you have a robust ERM, and some event happens in the industry subsector, and then stock analysts start asking, uh, you know, tough questions, and the, uh, the, the company is able to say, well, you know, we think you're actually overestimating how much this is impacting our organization. We actually uh, performed robust ERM for several years, and a few years ago, we identified this specific risk event as our number seven exposure, and we developed different scenarios. The exact scenario didn't happen, but it's in between a couple that we imagined, and mostly this played out as we expected. There was a couple of surprises. We have a feedback loop of understanding on that, but we also <clears throat> had more mitigation and more uh, insurance, so we have less of an impact on us. And we have a 13-point post-event plan that we're on step four. By next Tuesday, we'll be on next seven, uh, step seven. And we don't realize that our Asian business is counter-cyclical. This offsets one-third of the impact. Then those stock analysts go to their competitors, and they're still scratching their head trying to figure out what happened. Over time, keep demonstrating that mastery over risk. You, get, you can get a management multiple bump, which is massively valuable. Uh, from a management perspective, just better tools to manage exposures to within uh, the risk appetite, as, as, as Jim mentioned. More efficient allocation, uh, again, of your mitigation given your limited resources, and better risk-reward decisions. From rating agencies, of course, they get better perspective information for credit risk assessment. They have sort of limited time and energy, limited information, mostly historic. This really helps them look prospectively, and so they love it. And regulators love it, because the more organizations do this in a strong way, you get lower systemic risk.
Yeah, it's a significant value. Uh, so you mentioned risk, you both mentioned risk appetite. So let's talk about that. Can, can you give us some context and, and also how organizations should assess their appetite for risk? Well, I'll jump in. Uh, I mean, risk appetite is um, loosely defined. It, it would be, it, it's more of a qualitative kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of the level and the type of risk that the company wants to take and is willing to accept in uh, pursuit of its strategy and objectives. So, so it, it's something that uh, the organization looks at, you know, their, obviously their capacity, and then they take a look at the market and they, they size it up and they say, yes, this is the kind of uh, activity that we think that, that we want to get into. So if, if I'm thinking about uh, insurance as an example, um, so I, this company is willing to um, insure life for a group, uh, let's say a company, company X. But they may look at uh, another example of um, a, a very high risk kind of uh, insured investment product and say, we don't think we have the expertise or the capital to do that. So although it's something that, um, that may produce um, good results for us, it's not the kind of thing that we have an appetite for. So we sort of see it outside of where our expertise is and uh, the kind of things that we want to do. So it's very much keeping in mind the kind of things you want to do, but also understanding what your own capabilities are so that you actually can do it. I want to come back to this after our break. You're listening to The North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing enterprise risk management with my guests, Jim Gilligan and Jim and Sim Siegel. You can contact Jim at jim.gilligan at nexusrisk.com and sim at sim at Simergy. We'll be right back after short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The North Star. 
If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. Uh, you can, well, we're discussing enterprise risk management today with uh, my guests, uh, Jim Gilligan and Sim Siegel. Uh, before break, uh, Jim, we were talking about uh, risk appetite, but there's other factors uh, that one might want to consider, uh, like, for example, capacity. Do you want to talk about a couple of those? Uh, sure. So um, if we think about capacity, that really comes before the appetite. So, so a risk capacity for an organization is the absolute amount of risk that the organization could, could take on. Uh, given whatever it happens to be, the, the amount of capital they have, the, uh, the degree of liquidity they have in the organization, whatever some of those, those key factors are that uh, drive the, the organization. Uh, so when you start with that, then, then you look at what your appetite is. So if you think back to the example I gave before the break about uh, sort of a, a more of a high risk kind of insurance product that, that an organization might not typically do, they might have the capacity uh, to do that, but their appetite says, we really don't want to do this because we don't have the expertise. Uh, we don't want to put that much capital that we have in the organization at risk. So the, the appetite becomes, as you sort of cascade down these, uh, these kind of things and think about the capacity first, then you go to the appetite. And if you look after that, um, you know, what, organizations should typically be looking at then on an annual basis is what's our tolerance for risks? So given a certain level of, of appetite, um, what do we actually want to achieve? The maximum minimum, you know, so we, we'd like to get it up, but not too far. So we set a maximum and we also set a minimum because part of uh, risk management is the discipline to say, we're not taking enough risk. And so you have tolerances there that will kind of point out to you. These are the kind of things that you should be reporting to the board in dashboard reporting on a regular basis. So they can see that uh, they've already approved the appetite. So how are we doing on that on a regular basis? So on a, you know, whenever the board meets, you know, are we going beyond what our tolerances are or are we not even getting to the minimum of that? And, you know, that in itself could be a problem. I'll turn it over to, to uh, Sim. Yeah, I, I, so you, Jim, you mentioned a number of important things. I just jotted down two here I want, want to follow up on. One is, you're absolutely right, is this, look, there's a lot of differences and, uh, among enterprise risk management experts. One that is almost uniform agreement is that there's, there's almost no really good risk appetite statements out there. They generally now are qualitative, kind of vague mumbling. When you introduce somebody at a party, you don't yeah. know their name, you kind of trail off at the end and mumble, right? So that's what, what, what companies mostly have is statements, just as you said, Jim, that it's sort of philosophical statements about the kinds of business we're in. It's sort of the seat of the pants sense, but it's, it's stuff that all predates enterprise risk management. Uh, so the way, uh, the way I think is a good way to describe it is that, and, and Jim, you covered this already, but is that you first have to understand what your exposure is. And, and risk appetite is setting a limit on that. There's, there are definitely different terms in terms of, you know, capacity, risk capacity, and it does cause confusion. There's no standard terminology in the era, which is definitely uh, an issue. 
but one way to think of it is that if you first understand what your volatility is over at the aggregate level, as Jim and I have been talking about with you, Bill, uh, the, if you understand that deeply, then you can say, well, let's put a cap on it. And the second very important thing I want to mention that Jim said is you absolutely need, you need to have a, a focus on not taking too little risk. I had two clients that said, look, we know we're not taking enough risk. We're here to take risk. People don't want to put their money in T-bills, right? We're not, so we're not doing it. We're not, we're not here for that. Let's take, we need, but we need to prove it. We need to prove that we can do it, how much we need to get more quantitative and demonstrate it to our key stakeholders. And we need the comfort to know where we can do that. So you, it's not just about mi- minimizing risk at all. A very, very important point. So if you think about it, even more, the more sophisticated ones that started earlier, financial services companies, if you, in terms of understanding the, the overall volatility of the organization and whether it's, your utility with very, very low volatility or your startup Silicon Valley with very wide volatility or something in between, you need to understand it first before you put a cap and as mentioned, a floor. And even financial services companies tend to have many problems with how they look at understanding their overall volatility and they miss a lot of stuff. So they typically, as we said before, look at only the extreme downside, not the volatility near and around the mean, which you need that. Uh, they're only looking at near-term impacts, not looking at the multi-year projections because a lot of risks play out in the future. And you need to fully quantify that to prioritize better. They tend to uh, look on uh, the impact of just near-term cash flows rather than on value impacts, which is a discounted cash flow method. And they tend to only really, really do deep financial volatility analysis on the financial risk. And that's not enough. The Every industry study I've ever seen uh, shows that, uh, and all the client work I've done, even in financial services, shows the same rough relative picture for big risk, big volatility items, ERM. Two-thirds of the risk come from strategic, about 20-something percent come from operational, and the remainder, not that they're unimportant, come from financial and insurance volatility. So that's it's got to be in there. So there's a lot of problems and weaknesses and shortcomings in traditional approach, but once you have a full, robust view and understanding of your overall volatility, then risk appetite is a cap on that. Well, let's, you know, you, you mentioned strategy and, and tactical approaches. So let, let's, let's get to this and we'll, we'll come back on some of the different um, industries. But uh, we, do we want to, do organizations need to really think about risk at the strategic planning level as they're moving into uh, either new innovations or new markets or, or just doing their strategic, their annual strategic plans, right? Should they be thinking about it at that point? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, Bill. It, uh, and I think Sim uh, raises a really good point about uh, it's easy to get lost in the weeds when it comes to um, uh, risk management. And if I think back to the period of time before 2008, 2009, because that was really kind of an inflection point when it comes to risk management. It was obvious, painfully obvious in the public domain, how particularly financial organizations were uh, remiss in a lot of their their risk management. And one of the things that, that was very interesting about that time, which seemed counterintuitive, but a lot of those organizations would stand up and say, we spend millions of dollars on risk management. We, we understand our risks. But I think um, what messages came out of that was a lot of that risk management activity was box checking or box ticking kind of uh, activity. So uh, e- even in, in my own situation, it was... Um, it was painfully um, uh, mind-numbing 
the, the risk management activity that we did. So we would go through and we'd look at the risk register and we had hundreds of risks were there. And then we talk about what kind of mitigants do we have in place? And then once it was all over, what did you have? You, you had maybe trees, but you certainly didn't have a forest at all. And, and, it, and I think this is what happened to a lot of financial institutions. They, they didn't understand from that macro view, from that enterprise view, what kind of risks they really had. And as a result of that, like Sim said, a lot of these things that they may not have uh, thought about in a serious kind of way, uh, but they were just sort of aspects, if you will, of, of their overall risk picture, actually were, were deadly for them. They were, they were nuclear. And, and when they finally came to the surface, it created you know, lots of problems for them. So if you don't understand as an organization what your overall risk is, what your overall enterprise risk appetite is and how that cascades down, then you better do that before you start looking at doing some really nifty kind of uh, uh, strategic planning about getting into all kinds of different areas. You, you really need to understand the risk profile first before you get into the strategy. And, and, and you know, Jim's right. This, Bill, this is a big question that you asked because this is a big part of the struggle of chief risk officers is how do you get the buy-in? How do you get this integrated into the organization? Traditionally, you know, the risk folks, you know, the, the planning folks or anybody trying to fund an initiative has that sort of hockey stick view, right? It's going to grow fantastic up. And, and they're talking about the up and, the, and they bring the risk folks in. And historically, the risk folks are always talking about the down. And, and so the, the, the up folks say, hey, you know, yeah, there's always down. It takes risk to do business, but get out of the way. Get out of the room. They don't want to invite them in. It's all this negative stuff. So, and, and the risk folks are saying, yeah, you're always projecting the up, but, you know, you don't always make it. And you need to look at that side. And they're both right. So the two need to come together. The problem is, is that most ERM methodologies don't get us there. It's not the failure of the chief risk officers for the organizations. It's the failure of the traditional enterprise risk management methodologies that is sort of the sidecar. It needs to be integrated. It needs to, you need to look both up and down. So the way that I recommend to do it is to have that we already talked about is risk needs to be defined as any deviation from baseline strategic plan. That's the value-based enterprise uh, risk approach that I innovated is look at not just downside, look at up and down and any deviation from plan because we all have to care about plan. And the key to the value base is what do you value? And clarifying that as an organization is a great exercise. Let's get clear. What are we supposed to achieve? What are those objectives we hope to achieve in a multi-year way? Then that's, that's what we care about. And it hopefully is aligned with where we have our incentive comp uh, for senior executives. Uh, it's not always perfectly aligned, but that's the job. And then, then let's look at deviation around that because now we've got buy-in. Now we, we have people care about it. If you do it that way, you basically, and I've always said that the way, you know, if the term enterprise risk management becomes term non grata, and, you know, I would still do the same work I've always done the way I always do it, but I would call it what it really is at its core, dynamic strategic planning. Yeah. Because it really helps enhance the strategic plan. It's a longer story of how it actually works, yeah. but it really, what you, if you do it the right way, what you can do is you can say, very interesting things that are engaged. Not, oh, you know, in the, in, in the tail, we lose this much capital and we have a one in a million chance. No. Yeah. Yes, we have to do that for capital setting, but nobody cares about that day to day. So, but if you can say, well, you know, we've looked at our, our key risks, we've looked at the volatility, we believe, and it's an estimate, that we have a 32% chance of meeting or exceeding plan. Now, who cares about the chance of meeting plan? 
everybody. Everybody's job, bonus, promotion, everything is tied to plan delivery, right? So they're like, hmm, okay, that's interesting, 32%. Yeah, but last year it was 44%. Oh, my gosh. What, what changed? Why did that happen? What risks are in our way? Which business segments and subsegments are having difficulty achieving it? What can we do about it? Now you're in a position to be able to answer all those important questions. That's an important and engaging dialogue. We've actually shared a lot of stats on this program uh, early on about the, the, the inability of organizations to effectively implement strategies. So this is really good. It integrates really nicely. Um, let me uh, kind of blend a couple things together, just uh, different industries, how they should think about risk, and then also different types of risk. I think they probably go hand in hand in glove. But uh, maybe we can talk about just, you know, I see, you know, transportation, if I'm moving hundreds of thousands of people around the world on a regular basis, then there's some other risks I don't, I need to think about that are different than if I'm just making widgets. So can you talk a little bit about different types of risks and then also some, some industry factors that might play in there? Yeah. I mean, I, I uh, think, Bill, yeah. uh, Bill, I think that, um, that's a good example because it, it uh, gets to a couple of areas that uh, Sim mentioned before. Uh, what I would call uh, a counterparty risk, which uh, Sim was saying, you know, that you have uh, certain relationships with uh, outsiders that you may not think um, all of the things equal, that they don't represent a risk to you. But if you're talking about United Airlines, for example, well, they have a huge counterparty risk with Airbus and um, Boeing. And so when, when a plane goes down, of course, um, the, the airline itself has significant risk, uh, but, but so does Boeing. And, and so it's, you know, it's not good enough for United to say, well, I don't really have to worry about that because that's really Boeing's problem. But it's really not. In, in that sense. So the, the first thing that happens right away, of course, is, you know, there is a, a certainly a financial aspect to that, but there's a huge repu, uh, reputation risk. So when, when you have uh, transportation companies, reputation risk is, you know, everybody has reputation risk, but for a transportation company, when it comes to moving people, people around, it, it's really big. So yes, financial risk, capital because you're looking at uh, significant amounts of money that have to go out for for the planes but they they touch the people it's a service industry so you're looking at every day that uh, someone's in in front of a customer there's a risk there there's a risk that uh, they're going to be able to deliver the service there's a reputation risk associated with that and then on a more as i say more macro basis if if there happens to be a uh, an incident that occurs, then that just magnifies those kind of things. So in addition to the normal financial and capital and liquidity and all of the operational, those kind of things, they also have uh, big risks when it comes to being a service company and reputation risk. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to add to that. It's really, really an interesting uh, discussion because you know, when people ask me this a lot, like, well, you know, what are the common risks? And there are some common ones that Jim and I expect to see and we see. Uh, but and even within an industry subsector, which I may have done many, many projects for, I don't know until I come in and, and you know, Jim knows it too, but you bring a process, right? Enterprise management is a process that sorts out, it extracts information from the organization, sorts it out and feeds it back in a decision-making tool. That, and, and until you do it, you really don't, 
know which ones are going to fall in terms of the high and low scenarios. And I have many case studies I could share if we have time of, of huge companies. I've done this for two Fortune 20s where you know, brilliant people, they know the business certainly better than I do. And, but the ERM process brings out insights that shifts their attention. Oh, I was worried about this. I don't need to be worried about this. I need to be worried about something else. If I could share one quick um, anecdote, uh, there was a... Uh, a company I got hired by uh, was a TMO, Timberland Investment Management Organization. Never heard of these things. May have heard of them. They basically it's it's a collection of investor money. They buy land, grow trees, sell trees. I didn't know anything about this business. So I, I huge business in, in the United States. They first wanted to pilot it in their Brazil properties, which are similar. I go down there. I'm expecting. What are you expecting? First one of the risks you're going to hear, right? For trees, forest fires, right? Turns out they're like, no, not an issue at all. <laughs> Government lands, yes, we manage it very well. It's a very small risk. But what, the, what this first risk that this expert wanted to mention, he's been in the business 30 years, we wanted to mention a certain disease comes into the forest and knocks out a certain type of tree. The process, uh, and asking the questions of, okay, how long would you be out? How long would it cost to get back? And then the key question that comes out is, how long would your competitors take to come back to market? They had a very specific reason why they'd be first and there'd be a gap before the competitors come back. Next question, how much would the price spike and how much would you sell in that time? With the back of an envelope, very quick in the, con- in the conversation, it turned out to be an upside risk scenario. Mm-hmm. That's a deep technical expert I'm talking to. The process brings that out. Those kind of insights, the light bulb goes off in those meetings. Now, not that they're going to go you know, plant that disease in the forest, I hope, uh, but, but at least they know not to focus on that as a risk. And that, that's the kind of insight. You've got to do the work. That's good. We'll uh, come back to this after a quick break. You're listening to The North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing enterprise risk management with my guest, Jim Gilligan and Sim Siegel. Uh, Sim's author of uh, Corporate Value of Enterprise Risk Management. Uh, His book is widely used in academic and other circles. Uh, If you go to my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com, to the radio page, you'll find links to uh, a lot of the content we're discussing today. Uh, So we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs, and you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? 
Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to WMMULRIC at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMULRIC at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. You can reach me on LinkedIn by email or at my website. We're discussing enterprise risk management with my guests today, Jim Gilligan and Sim Siegel. Uh, so let me jump back over to um, uh, the topic that we uh, want to make sure we cover is, is governance, board level, C-suite. Um, it doesn't end there, but maybe you guys can comment just on that. And then we'll and, and, and Sim, if uh, frameworks get worked into that conversation, feel free. Otherwise, we can uh, come back to that. So um, I'll, I'll jump in on the governance side. Um, obviously, uh, from an ERM perspective, governance is, uh, is of extreme primacy. I mean, you absolutely have to have uh, strong oversight, strong governance on this. So it's management's responsibility to put together the um, the ERM framework to work through it, but it has to be approved by the board. And more importantly, over time, it, it has to be monitored by the board. I think I made mention earlier in our discussion that there should be dashboard reporting on a regular basis to the board in, in terms of uh, how we're doing on the tolerances. So, you know, are we uh, exceeding the maximum? Are we below the minimum? Uh, where do we stand overall on that? And if it needs to be uh, reviewed further, then then let's take a look at it. Uh, I wanted to mention just a, a couple of quick anecdotes uh, as it relates to board oversight, because uh, again, coming out of the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, there was a renewed look at um, what's required of a board. And, and so, a lot of the regulators, and and frankly, um, in the best practice literature, uh, there was a whole new look at what was required of board members. And things like independence and things like having uh, a background and, uh, if possible, even a specific kind of skill in areas that are done by the board became much more prominent than they were before. And in my area, in, in the insurance area, there were a couple of uh, notable instances where uh, the company actually did things or didn't do things. And I'm thinking of um, a couple of instances, a, a major life insurance company uh, did not um, uh, look at its uh, equities in a way that, um, that was safe for the organization and um, and, and they didn't cover those. And then when the, the markets dropped by 30%, um, they took on a big loss. And, and the board right away stood up and said, well, why, why did that happen? Why, why, didn't, um, why, why didn't we take appropriate action on that? And, um, and the management said, well, we told you that that's, that's what the story was. So 
what happened was there was a, a, a significant gulf of communication between the board and management. And, and it was one of uh, kind of symptomatic of potentially what uh, some of the problems were as it related to risk management. And so as a result of that, uh, coming out of that, there was uh, a lot of initiatives around board education and board qualifications and, and that sort of thing. But ensuring that management and the board are on the same wavelength. And, you know, Sim has talked about a lot of, um, uh, of a detailed kind of uh, ERM attributes. And these are the kind of things that a board has to be able to understand, has to be able to internalize and make decisions based on those. So it's very important that the, there isn't that gulf of communication or understanding, lack of understanding at the board level. And I think that's one of the things that has happened since the Great Recession is that boards have upped their game, both in terms of who sits on the board, but also in terms of their qualifications and their continuing education and understanding of actually how the business works. Yeah, I, I totally agree with Jim. It, it's, it's, and you mentioned really all of it, which is that there needs to be an understanding and engagement, knowing what questions to ask. So there has to be more board training, I think, on this uniformly. You, typically, there's only a small subset of the board that really has a deeper understanding and it's sort of relegated, but that's, that's a little bit dangerous. The, and, and again, what, what do they have to do? They have to have awareness of the key risk exposures and the risk decisions. They have to have familiarity with the ERM program. They have to be able to evaluate whether it's effective. And they definitely have to be involved with uh, you know, defining risk appetite and looking over that. But there's other aspects of governance, too. And one of the keys is that corporate ERM has to have a strong hand in maintaining consistency. Sometimes they delegate too much out, and then there's not consistency. It has to be uh, you know, consistency. In, they have to build, maintain, and enhance the infrastructure. They also have to build buy-in. But the consistency, the definitions, the concepts, the terminology, the tools, the techniques, the assumptions even that are that cross the entire firm, the metrics, the decision-making process itself, and risk messaging both internally and even more importantly ex externally as well. Uh, so there's, then there's different other groups that have their place, like the ERM committee and the business segments and internal audit, but those are the, the main ones. Uh, uh, so, uh, any comments on some risk frameworks uh, that are out there, Sim, that people can uh, use or think about? That's an important question because, uh, Bill, because so many organizations are using cobbled together pieces, and that's that's pretty typical. So, which makes sense. Make you know, make it fit to what works for your organization. The you know, uh, the most common is COSO ERM. Uh, ISO 31000 is mentioned, but that's really principles. And, you know, when I ask people, they oh, no, we use ISO 31000. I'm like, okay, let's go through. How do you do this? How do you do that? How do you do this? Okay, that all sounds very much like COSO ERM. You know, Basil has, it, it, you know, it, its issues too. But if you look at how it's on the ground applied, mostly uh, the activities are follow the COSO ERM. But, but there's issues with that because COSO ERM is vague and it has been rewritten. Uh, but still the same complaints uh, are, are, are there. Uh, and that's, that's why I developed the, the value-based approach that I alluded to earlier, which is a marriage between value-based management and enterprise risk management, really looking at risk as deviation from uh, baseline expectations in the plan and, and, and looking at upside and downside volatility. I mean, there's a lot more to it, but that's the, that's the, the beginning of it. I developed it to address three main shortcomings that I saw through uh, years of study and, and client work. 
the three main shortcomings are one, how do you quantify the hard to quantify risk, the strategic and operational risk? That's sort of the holy grail of ERM. Most organizations don't know how to do it. And if you aren't quantifying that, you cannot inform on decisions related to strategy or operations, which tend to be the most important. The second is an, a lack of clear quantitative definition of risk appetite that can actually be used in the risk governance process. And we talked a lot about that already. And the third one is an inability to integrate ERM into routine business decision-making, starting with strategic planning, and as Jim said, cascading it down through strategic and tactical decisions and even transactions. So uh, that's this is the only approach I, I recommend to use. It's uh, what I use in my consulting. It's what I use at the foundation for the Columbia's uh, Enterprise Risk Management Master's Program. And that method is, has already influenced the redraft of COSA, which tried to move in the direction of value-based uh, and also the design of the own risk insolvency assessment itself, uh, which is used in insurance in the U.S. and insurance and banking in Canada. Let me get into an area where there's a lot of interest, uh, cyber-related risks, and that is certainly top of mind for lots of organizations today and governments. So uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I think that um, one of the first things about uh, cyber risks that um, uh, at least the management of it that's, that's kind of interesting is it's always been seen kind of on its own. And for a long period of time, it was only seen as being uh, an IT phenomenon. And, uh, and what you're hearing uh, more and more now from uh, consultants and experts in the uh, industry is it really needs to be managed like any other risk. It needs to be part of, you know, all of the things that we've been talking about. You know, there, there needs to be a sense of what uh, the appetite for risk is, what the challenges are, the mitigants that we can potentially put into place for this. And um, what we're, they're finding today is that uh, although a lot of organizations are doing things about um, cyber risk, it's mostly on the compliance side. And, and part of the problem with it is that cyber risk is something you don't see. It's not something you can feel or touch. It's something that you only know about typically uh, after the fact, after the problem has occurred. And so as a result of that, um, there, there's kind of a, um, you know, almost a, a false sense of security in a lot of cases because organizations have adopted uh, compliance uh, areas to take a look at this. But, but so many times it, it's something that, that they just, it, it just doesn't cover the whole thing. The other thing that's interesting is um, Deloitte has estimated that uh, the area of having cyber experts to, to work on this is lacking. They, they figure that there's about a million and a half uh, people that are not in the industry that should be there. And, mm -hmm. and so that's a huge uh, kind of uh, situation that uh, all organizations have to deal with. So, you know, there's all of these, these kind of things. Additionally, there's a whole plethora of tools that are out there to deal with um, cybersecurity. The problem is they, uh, which ones do you pick? Which ones are the right ones? And then they have to be sort of screwed on to the top of, uh, of the whole thing. The, the last point that I'd make that I think is really important, and it refers back to what we were talking about, particularly as related to counterparty risk, is third-party cyber risk. So if you think about where is really the attack surface for cyber risk, much of it comes from third-party risk. Much of it comes from your 
your supply chain and other uh, so, sort of uh, people that interact with you that are coming in, that are opening up systems in your networks, that have access to your client data, that access to your employee data. And it's like anything else, you know, you're, the, the weakest link is, is where everything will happen. So there, there's great challenges there. And, uh, and so the, the things that, uh, that organizations are doing are trying to stay ahead of it. But, you know, the, the criminal actors are actually, uh, you know, also staying up at the power curve too. So there, there's a lot of things that still need to be done. And uh, organizations aren't always there today. It's, it's very much of a, a big issue today. But I think that it really does need to be um, managed more within the context of their operational risk and all of the discipline that they have around that they need to apply to cyber risk too. Sim, uh, can you comment on that? Yeah, Jim's absolutely on the money with this. It, it, it needs to be seen more in an ERM context. Now, listen to this. CISOs, they have today three main issues to face them. And when I say this, he, hear what Jim was saying about it needs to be integrated into ERM. How do they prioritize from among all the myriad things coming at them? One. Two, once they know what they want to do, how do they make the business case? How do they get the funding for what they want? It, they know needs to be mitigated? And three, how do you ever draw a defensible line in the sand to say that this is what we're going to cover and no farther? So the related challenge that you mentioned is how do you integrate this? So you need an approach that can integrate this into the overall ERM program so that you have the terminology and put it in the language of business decision makers to make that business case and to, so that the overall uh, firm can look at how that integrates and prioritize those risks among all the risks. Sounds good. Uh, we probably can continue this for another hour, but I want to thank my guests today, Jim Gilligan and Sim Siegel. We've been discussing enterprise risk management. You can contact Jim at jim.gilligan at nexusrisk.com and Sim at sim at synergy.com. You can find links to the material referenced today posted on the North Star Radio sh show page of my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Uh, thank you, Jim and Sim, for sharing your insights. I think we might have to have you back at some point here in the <laughs> In the near future, uh, my guest next week will be Kelly Eckmeyer, VP of PNC Bank, and Teresa Garcia-Holm, strategy consultant at Wells Fargo. We'll be discussing business architecture in the real world. You've been listening to the North Star. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You can contact me by email, LinkedIn, or at my website. Thanks for joining me today. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to the North Star. Please join host William Ulrich for another edition of the program next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll continue our discussion on strategy execution then.